Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33, which can also be found on page 8 of your bulletin. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? He said, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. This is God's word. We've been saying that the Bible is not just a collection of individual disparate stories teaching us how to live a moral life, but it's a single story. It's one single story uh, about the gospel. And uh, we've been looking at the book of Genesis, particularly the life of Abraham. The story of Abraham, the narrative, teaches us what it means to live a big life, what it means to live a rich life. Abraham, you know, he was called out of his social, his cultural, his religious context, and he lived a remarkable life. How was he able to do that? It's because he lived on the basis of a call, the call of God, the call. It enabled Abraham to live a big life. He endured famine, economic depression, a recession. He endured it. He endured incredible wealth and loss. He endured wars, confrontations with kings. He endured threats to his marriage, threats to his family. How was he able to do that? How was he able to take such big risks and live such a remarkable life? And you notice in this passage, particularly in this passage, it's very, very blatant. He's praying. Abraham is praying. He's connecting with God. He's able to live this big life 
but he's connecting with God throughout these intimate encounters with God. Now, most people in society, they're going to tell you that they pray. We live in a time today where everybody is seeking the thrill of spiritual experience, the thrill of spiritual reality, but they don't want the commitment that comes with that experience. They don't want the commitment that comes with experiencing spiritual truth. And what they're saying is that they're spiritual. They want spiritual connection, but they're not religious. But the Bible here says that real spirituality is not just believing in God, It's not just uh, even talking to God. It's not just reaching out to God or finding hope in God, but rather it's responding to a God that is living and active and speaking and coming to you. God is coming to you. That's what the Bible says. It's It's knowing a God who actually comes to you, interacts with you, confronts you, presses himself on you through his word and through that he's changing your life he's actually changing your mind he's making your heart shift in all that it desires and how the heart works and and changes how you live your life this is a this is a fascinating thing and we see this in this fascinating this remarkable chapter what's happening here um the backdrop of this is three men come to visit abraham he's standing by his tent and Abraham is basically living in, in dry land, this desert place. And these three men come to him and approach him. And, and he feeds them. He's being what a hospitable person in his day is called to do. He rushes and he's fixing this incredible meal for them at the hottest time of the day. And it becomes very, very clear throughout, throughout this time that one of these people is God himself. It's the Lord. And, 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 and he's praying with him. He's dialoguing. He the men get up to leave after their meal and they go off to Sodom and Abraham is left dialoguing with God. He's speaking to God. He's connecting with God. And we're going to learn three things about prayer. Three things about prayer. How to pray. Why we pray. And how prayer actually contributes to us living a big life. How to pray. Why we pray. And how prayer actually moves us towards living, contributes towards us living a big life, a rich life. First, how Abraham prayed, which inevitably teaches us how we pray. Abraham prays three R's, responsively, reflectively, representatively. Okay, it's a sub-points within this point, right? Responsively, reflectively, representatively. He prays responsively. Who starts the dialogue? Verse 17 Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham uh, sees these men. They're getting up. They're walking over to Sodom. They're making their destiny. They're trying to arrive at their destination. And he's walking. He's dialoguing with God, with the Lord. And God stops and says, Should I share with you what I want to share? Now, anytime you speak to a friend and they tell you, Should I really tell you? Should I tell you this? you know that they've already set in their hearts, they want to tell you, and they're planning on telling you, but they're just kind of talking out loud. And that's what God's doing. God has already intended to share with Abraham what he's about to share, and he's about to share what? The destruction that's going to come upon Sodom. The promise that he wants to reiterate to Abraham amidst the disaster that's awaiting. And he, what do you see here? Who starts the dialogue? It's God. God starts the dialogue. God approaches Abraham. God has already decided. 
It's not, prayer is not us initiating dialogue with God, but rather God actually reaching out to us. You know, if you pray as if you're always initiating and you're reaching out to God with your heart and your desires and your needs and your perception of what you feel you need in life, then it's going to make you feel good for a while. You're going to feel warm. You're going to feel fuzzy. Why? Because God is merely a projection of yourself. God is a projection of your needs. God is a projection of your desires. God, that God will always listen to you. He will always answer you. He will always hear you because he's merely a projection of your thoughts. What you want God, what you prefer God to be. That kind of prayer is going to warm you for a while. It's going to make you feel good when you're done. But it will never enable you to live a big life. Why? Because only a God... Only a God who comes to you and tells you things you don't want to hear. Only a God who tells you how you really are. Only a God who comes to you and and disturbs you and sometimes offends you. Sometimes you feel judged and sometimes you feel incredibly pushed. That is the only God that's going to allow you to push yourself, to stretch you to live a bigger life. A God that you create in your own self A projection of yourself will never be able to challenge you the way a true living God, one who exists and is real, can push you and challenge you. You can't create this kind of a God. Here, God initiates. Abraham responds. God comes to him. God confronts him. And God changes him. That's responsive. Abraham's merely responding in his dialogue. But secondly, prayer is reflective. In this dialogue, Abraham is demonstrating an incredible familiarity in his context with God. He's incredibly familiar. He's practically haggling with God. If you understand, if you've ever shopped in any country outside of the United States, you understand the meaning of haggling, bargaining down to get what you want. Commentators have expressed and and shared that their perception of Abraham here, the language that he's using, what he's saying, how he's asking, it's almost like yes is not enough. Abraham continues to haggle with God. He's very assertive. Religious people will look at that and say, that is so disrespectful. You should never talk to God that way. But at the same time, look at Abraham. He knows who he is. He's incredibly humble. He's incredibly submissive. On one hand, you see Abraham very assertive. 50, how about 45? How about 40? How about 30? But at the same time, he says, if I may speak. On one hand, very, very humble, very, very submissive. But on the other hand, very, very assertive, very, very almost pushing, almost haggling. How can he be this way? How can he be this way? On one hand, Abraham is very, very aware of his unworthiness. He's very, very aware of his weakness. He says, I am but dust and ashes. But on the other hand, he's far more assertive. He's almost pushing God. He's almost testing God, it seems like. He knows his his weakness and he knows God as sacred and holy, but at the same time, he's living on the basis of a call. On one hand, he's far more fearful, far more respectable, respective, Uh, showing respect to God because he understands who he is and he understands who God is and yet at the same time he's far more assertive, far more intimate, far more familiar and passionate at the same time because he understands his place, who he is in light of who God is. He understands his place. He understands his weakness 
And yet he's able to take big risks because he's living on the basis of a call. He understands that he's called. He trusts in the call of God. That's what it means to be reflective. We're always praying. We should always pray knowing who we are in our weakness. That's what's going to keep us humble. But at the same time, reflecting on the fact that we are called by God. And because of that, we can always confront God with how we feel, with what we think. Even if it sometimes disagrees with the way God is, we're dialoguing. We're called to that. God has loved us with an everlasting love. That's what it means to pray reflectively. And lastly, he prays representatively. When you and I pray, how do we pray? We start out, we say, God, and we give a laundry list of all the things that we want. Keep me healthy. Make me wealthy. I don't like my job. I'm not sure if I should be with the person I'm with. And we're constantly praying either for guidance or wisdom or material things, but that's not how Abraham's praying here. Abraham is leveraging his relationship with God to pray on behalf of others. Look at verse 20 here. God has just reiterated the promise again, the covenant that he made with Abraham. Verse 20, then the Lord says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. What God is saying here is that I hear the cries. I am just and I'm hearing the outcry. I hear the wickedness and I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to deal with it. And Abraham stands on behalf of the wicked. He doesn't say, will you just save the righteous people? Now, he has a nephew, Lot, who is out in Sodom. Lot is married. So, and he has children. He doesn't say, Lord, will you spare these people that I love for my sake? Will you spare these people? Because they're good people. They're righteous people. Will you just wait, hold back just for a little while until I can get these guys out? That's not what he says. He says, will you spare this city on behalf of just a few people here who are righteous? He doesn't say, we just save the righteous. He says, will you save the whole city? I know it's wicked. You know it's wicked. You hear the wickedness, but will you spare it? Will you spare the city? Will you spare the city on behalf of the righteous? He's praying representatively. He actually cares for the city. He actually asks God to bless Sodom and Gomorrah. He's leveraging his relationship with God for the sake of the wickedness, the wicked people of Sodom. He's not praying for himself. He's not praying for his goals. He's not praying for his wealth. He doesn't even mention his nephew. He actually lays himself down. He's taking a tremendous risk because God is about to wreak havoc on Sodom and Gomorrah. But he lays himself on the line. And he says, will you spare the city for these people? He cares for the whole of the city. Is that how you pray? Are our prayers dominated by love for our city? We want to serve the city. We have lots of people here who want to serve the city. We have lots of people here who want to get involved. We live in a time where people actually want to be very active on behalf of those who are needy. But the thing is, do we pray? Are our prayers dominated By the city. Do you pray for the plight of other races? We live in a culture as as diverse 
as our culture is becoming, it's also becoming more fragmented. There are tremendous articles and, and, and anecdotes about how fragmented our society is becoming. Rich and poor, all the races. Do we pray for the plight of other races in the city? We're usually skeptical. It's very natural to be skeptical of other races. But do you pray with humble boldness for the sake of the people who need our prayers, for the wicked, for people who don't know about God, who don't care about God, who offend God? Do you pray for them? This is what it means to pray representatively. This is what it means to have a heart that breaks for people representatively. Now, why can he do this? Why does Abraham do this? Why can we pray like this? Why can Abraham lay his life down and pray on behalf of people who have no regard for God? And how can he be so humble and yet so assertive? How can we pray that way? Now, this prayer, we're going to kind of walk through some parts of this prayer. It's got tremendous theological depth. There's immense depth. He's not just praying. He's not just using simple words. He's not just trying to cajole God into getting what he wants. There's tremendous depth in what he's asking for. Because the nature of this prayer, Abraham is banking on two things. And that's what we should bank on. We are able to pray because we're able to bank on these same two things. Literally, Abraham is praying, reminding God about who God is. Turn with me. Abraham, a God in verses 18 to 19 reiterates the promise. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. God is saying, I have chosen you. I have chosen that through your descendants, your one from your descendants will actually redeem everything that is wrong with the world, everything that's broken in the world. Your line is very important to me. I will preserve it and it will grow and it will multiply and I will bless it. That's the promise. But he says, I've heard the outcry against Sodom. It's violent. It's, it, Sodom represents the violence of the inner city. And Abraham here focuses on the attributes of God. First, he says, right after the promise, he says, shall not the judge of the earth do right? He says, God, you are just. You are the judge, rightly so. You are the judge of the earth. But will you not do right? In other words, are you going to let the righteous die with the wicked? And on that basis, will you spare the entire city On the basis of your justice, he says. What hope is there if God isn't just? If you read uh, Freud, if you read uh, any of uh, the great philosophers, Nietzsche in particular, says, first of all, God is dead. And because God is dead, there's no such thing as justice. It's a tremendous philosophical argument. And Abraham is appealing to God in the same way that if you who are just refuses to be just, what hope is there for the whole world? What hope is there? He's saying if, if there's no God of justice, there's no hope for the world. And, and God reiterates this promise, you know, through your family, I'm going to bless the world through your family. Abraham originally probably thought that uh, it was first based on his own character. You know, but then he fails. Throughout the course of the last month and a half, we've been going through the story of Abraham and realize Abraham has failed over and over. And he realizes that. 
that initially, although God called him, he probably thought, maybe it's based on my own character, but he realizes it's not based on his own character because he's failed over and over, but God hung in there. God is constantly reaching out. God is constantly reminding him of his blessing. God is constantly reminding uh, him that it's not based on, that, that Abraham is not qualified. He's called. And he's called to live out on the basis of that call. And now Abraham knows. And he says, God, will you not spare this whole city for the sake of the righteous? He's reasoning on the basis of God's love and God's grace. He says, there's lots of wicked people here. This city is wicked, but will you be gracious? Because the one thing that Abraham has experienced is the love of God and the grace of God. He's not just asking, you know, God, will you let these people go? He's not pleading for, he's pleading for the, for the righteous people in the city. He says, spare the city. He's being innovative when he says, you know, in other words, what he's saying is, you know, the guilt of the city has been basically transferred across. So when you look at the city, it is a wicked city. When I was in high school, you know, some of us are not too far removed from high school. Some of us are very removed from high school. But, you know, imagine when you're back in high school and all of our experiences are the same. If you're part of a popular community, you know, you have the acceptance of many friends, you know that there's a, a group of people that are not that popular. And you're told to stay away from them. It's kind of an unstated truth to stay away from this kind of community that, you know, but what happens? If somebody in the popular crowd walks over, crosses the bridge, and starts to hang, over, hang out with people who are in the unpopular crowd, their unpopularity starts to transfer over to this popular person. What happens? When he goes back, his friends say, what are you doing hanging out with those people? And if you continue to do that, their guilt transfers over to him. And Abraham is appealing to God. He says, I know that the guilt of the wicked has transferred to the whole of the city. You're about to destroy it. But is it possible for the righteousness of a few to be transferred to the whole of the city as well? That's what he's asking. He says, will you spare the whole city on the basis of the few righteous? Can the righteous stand? And will their right, is it enough for their righteousness to be transferred to the whole city? Would you love the righteous so much, even if there's only a few, that you would save an entire city just for them? He's practically haggling. He says, will you save them for 50 righteous? God says, yes. What about five less than 50? Will you save them for 45 people? God says, yes. He says, will you save them for 40 righteous people? God says, yes. Would you save them for 30? Would you save them for 20? Would you save them for 10? God says, yes, yes, yes. And then Abraham says, okay, and he goes home. That's what the text says. He doesn't, you would think the obvious thing to do here would be to say, Lord, if I may ask one more thing. The obvious thing to ask is what? Would you save the city for one righteous person? Would you save the city on behalf of one righteous man? But he doesn't ask. The text says, then Abraham returned home. Why doesn't he ask? because he knows there's no righteous man. Abraham knows. Abraham knows there's no righteous man in Sodom. He was called to stay in Canaan. 
Sodom was the one area that he could have gone to increase his wealth. But he stayed because he knows that Sodom is wicked. God had called him to stay. Sodom is a wicked place. And he knows that if he had looked, no matter how hard he looked, he would not find one righteous person in that city. And so he goes home and he realizes it's not even worth asking. It's not even worth looking. He sees the path. God would save. It's not like he's asking to test God. 50, how about 45? 45, how about 40? He's not testing God. He knows God. And he's in some ways testing his knowledge, his understanding. If I, what I know about God is true, that he is gracious without bounds, that he's loving without end, then he would save for 50 he would spare the city for 40, for 30, for 20. He's asking, and he's asking, and he knows. He says, yeah, I realize what I'm asking is it's, it's, it's true. This is the God I know. But he knows that he also knows himself. He's incredibly flawed, and he knows Sodom. He knows the world. It's incredibly violent. It's incredibly wicked. And so he doesn't ask any longer. He's praying and he's interceding on behalf of them and yet he goes home and he returns. What was he doing? These people might have killed him and yet he's praying for them. He prays for them and yet he knew that not a single person could stand for the wicked. Until centuries later, you see a greater Abraham. Jesus stands in Jerusalem And he's crying and he's weeping and he's praying. He's praying for the city. And what does he say? He says, you have rejected me. If only you would know me. That's basically what he's saying. Then you would not experience what you're about to experience, the devastation that you're about to experience. And he's weeping and he's praying for Jerusalem all the way to the cross. On the cross, Jesus He's not, praying, he's not risking his life for the sake of the city. He's sacrificing his life for the sake of the city. Abraham risks his life. Jesus sacrifices his life for the city. He's the greater Abraham. And on the cross, he's on the cross and he's suffering at the hands of not just people who might kill him, but people who are killing him. They're insulting him. They're saying, get down. Get down if you are who say you are. And, there's, and he's crucified on the cross. But he's praying for them. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Abraham prayed, you know, he says, I represent these people. Will you remember the righteous people? But then he knows, even he's not righteous. And he points to the need for a greater Abraham. Jesus is pray- he's praying. He's the greater Abraham. He says, Father, I represent these people. And on the cross, he represents us to the fullest degree. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The guilt of our wickedness has been transferred to Jesus and everything that Jesus deserved because he's righteous has been transferred to his people, the people that he loved. He says, Father, forgive them. In other words, what he's saying is, I represent these people. Let me be forsaken. 
Let me be Sodom. I am the greater Abraham. Let me be the greater Sodom. Punish me. Let your wrath pour out on me. But will you spare them as righteous? Will you do that? Jesus, the perfect righteousness. This is the reason why he tells his disciples in John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You need my righteousness. You know, when, he's, when we say that Jesus is the perfect righteousness, what he's saying in his prayer, you know, because we see the love of God. We're convinced by the love of God. He's going to spare God's people. He's going to spare those whom Jesus loves because Jesus takes on the wrath. But what about his justice? Is that just? The word righteousness, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, so that we can become the righteousness of God. It's legal terminology, attorney language. Jesus is standing before the court and he says, Father, now what we think he's doing is, God, love these people. Will you have compassion on these people because you are so compassionate? You are so loving. Everybody knows you're loving, so will you have compassion on these people? Please, please, please. That's what we think Jesus is doing. You know, on behalf of his people when we say that he's interceding. But that's not what he's doing. He's much more assertive. He's much more bold than that. He says, God, Father, the wages of sin is death. But I've taken on their sin. I've taken it on. Through that transaction on the cross, you sent me to the cross to die. Why? So that I could take on their sin. So not necessarily on the basis of your love. You love them, that's why you sent me. But on the basis of your justice, will you spare them? Because you would, if you are truly who you say you are, on, your, on, on infallible grounds, on the infallible justice of who you are, will you spare these people on the grounds of your justice? Because you would never then make these people pay twice for the same sin. They've already paid for it through me on the cross. On the basis of your justice, will you spare them? That's what he's saying. He's saying, not necessarily because of your love. You are loving. But on the basis of your justice, on the basis of your righteousness, will you spare them? You would never make them pay twice for their sins. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 16, it's printed in the word of encouragement in your bulletin. It says that Jesus is our great high priest. What, what that means, the work of the priest, the high priest is an amazing work. If you know anything about the high priest, the high priest was a person. So he's a sinner. So he stands and represents the people. What does he do? Here's what he does. Every week before the Day of Atonement, he goes through a tremendous preparatory period. What he eats is closely monitored so that he doesn't eat anything unclean for the entire week. And he actually stays secluded away from the people because he's, he's going through his cleansing rites and his rituals to prepare for what he's about to do. He's going to do the work of cleansing, one work for the whole people. It's an amazing day. And on that day, what happens? He takes a bath. He literally takes a bath, a sacred bath. And then what happens is when he comes out of that bath, they put on these fresh linens, clean clothes, and then he enters in. And he performs the sacrifice. What happens inevitably when you perform a sacrifice? You got these white linens and you're splashing blood everywhere. You get dirty. So then he comes back out 
And then he takes off his linens and he takes another bath. And he takes this bath, he comes out, they put another set of fresh linens on him and then he enters in and he does another sacrifice. And what happens? The sins are just being spewed around. You see that represented by the blood. Then he comes back out, he takes off his linens and he takes another bath. And he takes his bath and then he put another set of fresh linens on him and he goes in and he does another set of sacrifices. And this is all in the presence of people. People are literally watching this man take this bath and they're shouting and they're praying and they're rooting him on. You know why? Because they know that he represents them and it's got to be done to the T perfectly. Jesus is our perfect righteousness. He doesn't need a bath. And on the cross, the blood is being spilled. That's Jesus. Jesus' blood is being spilled. Hebrews chapter 4 says that he is the great high priest. He's the perfect priest because he's able to come out and spill his blood and it's perfect blood. He doesn't need to be cleansed, but he takes on our sin. He's taking on our sin. Incredible cleansing. If you trust in the gospel, that it's more than just, you know, um, a way, you know, religion says that it's man working his way to earn God's favor. The gospel is not outside in. You're not working your way to God's favor. You're trusting in the perfect work of Christ. Transfer to you. That's what's happening. His beauty, his righteousness, his glory, so that you can stand before a just God who's so loving that he sent his son to die, but at the same time so just that he cannot let go of sin. And so Jesus had to die. That's what it means to have the gospel, to trust. Remember, Abraham only saw part of the story. We get to see the whole story. And because we get to see the whole story, we can actually be more intimate, more assertive, and yet more humble than Abraham ever was. The nature of our relationship to God can be greater than the nature of Abraham's own personal relationship with God. We can be more intimate. How can knowing the gospel enable us to live bigger lives? If you understand the gospel, what do you see when you look at the cross? Inevitably, there are people here who see just a good man or maybe a crazy man or maybe a liar. But what do you see when you look at the cross? If you trust that it's the perfect righteousness of God spilt to cleanse us so that it's his righteousness transferred to us so he could take on our guilt and then spill his blood so that he got everything we deserve so that we could have everything he deserves. That's what you believe. It's going to change everything. Number one, it's going to change the way you pray. It's going to change the way you pray. If you see yourself broken and wicked, Abraham knew that there was not even one righteous man. If that's what you know, even about yourself, then you're going to experience the gospel again. Why? Because you realize that on one hand, God is so just that somebody had to die. But on the other hand, God is so loving, he wanted to die. He loved to die for you. That's going to melt your heart. The gospel is not us being hammered into obedience to God. 
It's us being melted in our love in response. Prayer becomes a response to God reaching out and being active and coming to you. Coming to you and calling you and who are you? Who are we? Abraham earlier in the text says, who am I? Why me? We can say, we can trust, we can live on the basis of the call that on one hand we are so wicked God had to die but at the same time we're so loved he chose to die. He loved to die. He would have chosen to die only for you. It humbles us deeply. But at the same time, we can be bold. It enables us to be assertive. You can trust. Every single time you'll get the cross, you realize that God's words are true and that means you can pray boldly. You can pray assertively. You can haggle with God. Intimately. In familiarity with God. Some of us haven't been in a building like this in a long time. So the notion of haggling with God is very, very foreign to us. But what does this teach? If you trust in the gospel, that what Jesus did for you is true and real. God becomes very, very personal. Let that change you. Let that change your life. Change the way you pray. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen? If you, don't, if, you don't, if you see God only, you're either going to see God only as love, and then what happens is if God is just a God of love, oh, he just loves everybody, then love, his love has no cost. His grace is, is non-existent. There's no such thing as grace because by nature, grace demands a cost. Right? Grace is getting something you don't deserve. By nature, then, you feel like you deserve everything. So when you pray, your prayer is mechanical. You're just praying to get something out of God. It's going to be dead. On the other hand, if you see God is just just, God is just righteous, God is just holy, then you realize the cost, but you're only going to come to it in fear, and you're never going to be assertive. You're never going to be bold to pray for the things that, you, that are really at, your, at the center of your heart and to ask God to change those things. You're always going to come in fear and you're always going to come hoping to pray that he's accepting of your prayer and that you're praying in the right way and that you're doing the right things so that you could earn a little bit more favor from God. Then you're just using God too. So whether you pray because God is God of love or whether you pray that God is a God of justice, you're just praying to just use God. Look at Abraham. On the basis of a call, he's living. He's able to be humble because he sees his wickedness. And at the same time, he's able to haggle and be familiar with God and, and really just work and work. You know, he's, he's kinda, it looks like he's kind of working God, but really what he's doing is he's dialoguing. You can dialogue freely with God. Tell him what's on your heart. You can pray like that. You can take tremendous risks in praying because you know that God is so loving despite how sinful we are. God has initiated with you and you are responding. That's one way. You can change the way you pray. The second thing we can do is it changes the way we view the world. Our relationship with the world changes. The religious people look at the city and they judge it. You know, up until this year, um, the world has been exhibiting or demonstrating a trend of people leaving the city because the city is very violent. So they leave the city and they, they like to find, um, you know, a small enclave for themselves, you know, in the suburban districts, you know, of the major cities of the world. And this is not a trend in America. This has been a trend throughout the history of probably the 1900s up until this past year. We're starting to experience now a re-entry into the city. People now more than ever in the past century want to return to the city. Now, the religious people look at the city and they judge it. Why? Because of all the lifestyles that exist in the city. You can either judge the city or you can mix into the city. Some people go into the city and they just mix in and they over-adapt. 
They just become a part of the evil and a part of the wickedness and a part of the competition and a part of the man, you know, destroying man in the world, whether it's through competition or, or in your careers or in relationships. But the thing is, only the gospel will change the way you truly, truly view the city because on one hand, the gospel allows us to look at the city and say, it is wicked. And I'm actually even a part of that at times. But God can spare it because he is loving. And it'll allow you to look at the city not with superiority. If you look at the city with superiority, you will never be winsome. People will never be drawn to you no matter how much you pray. But if you love the city and you pray for the city and you have a heart for the city and you're serving the city, you can, you, it, you, it takes away the feeling of superiority. You will grow in your humility Grow in your love for the city even though you recognize how evil it is. That's what it means to intercede, to representatively pray. Not just for our own needs, but the needs of the city. And that leads me to my last point. What you could do is, how does it make you to live a big life? Abraham is pleading. He doesn't say, can you spare my nephew? Can you spare my family? That's not what he prays for. He doesn't even mention Lot. You would think that that's the first thing he's thinking about. He prays for much grander things. Like Jesus, he's moved by the justice of God. He's moved by the righteousness of God. And at the same time, he's moved by the love of God. He's experienced the love of God. And so he can pray on that basis. We can go after the bigger things in our world. A lot of us here, most of us here, live very privileged lives. We have the, the benefit of education. We, can have, we have education at our fingertips in today's world. You can just get online and get a degree. We have access to so much benefit, and yet there, we are surrounded by people who have no access. Those doors have been shut a long time ago. We can go after the big things that move us. We can actually move by greater things than the things that move us every day. Our careers, our families, our children, you know, uh, our health, our beauty, our figures. We can go after so much more than that. This is not just a message of grow a bigger heart. If you are compelled by the gospel, you will be moved by greater things than what you can see just right in front of your face. And you will stand in the gap. You will actually pray representatively for those things. Will you be moved by that? You know, this is a season of Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're, there's so much to be thankful for. You know, we, I know that many of us who've had the opportunity, and that's a blessing in and of itself, because not all of us have that. You know, I, I was, my father died when I was very, very young. Uh, he died tragically, actually at the hands of the violence of the city in Philadelphia. He was murdered. And um, Thanksgiving every year was a struggle for my family. So we had a lot to be thankful for. And I know that whether you celebrated in grand, uh, in a ways with huge spreads at your table or just alone, we all have reasons here to be thankful. But are we moved? Has the gospel gone deep enough to be moved, to make us moved by greater things than that? Can we look now that we've looked inward for a weekend? Will you look outward? We have big windows in this church. 
let's not be blind. Will you look outward for the sake of the city and be moved by the plight of the city and pray representatively for the city because, not because it's the right thing to do, uh, because you would, know, you would only do this if you know that God is so gracious and so faithful and he demonstrated that on the cross for you, for you. Will you do that? Let's pray.